And welcome to the Bleacher Connection with your hosts, Ken and Trevor, a part of Unhinged Radio and Belly Up Sports. Make sure to check out both of those on Twitter, at Belly Up Sports and at Radio Unhinged. Make sure to check out bellyupsports.com to find all the podcasts on both networks, as well as articles from a lot of the podcasters and writers from Belly Up. As always, you can find Trevor and I on social media. Trevor's at the BleacherCon 1. I'm at the BleacherCon 2. We have our Facebook page, the Bleacher Connection Podcast. And make sure, as always, to check out our Twitter bios to find our link tree, to find our links to our partners at Dr. Squatch, as well as our merch page. Trevor, how are you doing today? Shitty Ken. Winter has arrived. That it has. Not it impressed. It's been, uh, in the Calgary area, it's actually been quite nice up until about this past week or so. And uh, yeah, the, the winter's here, snow on the ground. For those that may not know, I hate winter. I actually just picked up my daughter from figure skating earlier tonight. And I was like, you know, I've never told you how much I hate winter. And she's like, ooh, I love it. And I'm like, well, you're wrong. Like, winter's stupid. It really is. Sure, it's hockey season, but winter is stupid. Yeah, I just I just had family in town for uh, for the weekend. And my mom was out for, for a week. And it wasn't so bad the first week there, but this, this weekend, uh when my brother and sister came up it was cold very very cold so uh it's here and uh yeah definitely trying to find ways to stay warm that's for sure yeah i got a uh because weekend prior actually i was in edmonton with ken first time yeah. we've seen each other face to face in months and i get a harsh reality when i got out of the car at work on it was a couple wednesdays ago now and yeah, it was cold. I left Airdrie. It was above zero or Calgary area. Sorry. It was above zero and got to uh, Edmonton at minus 20. And I was just like, oh, what happened? Snow on the ground. So Freezing I, I kind of got a harsh reality of it then. But I'd come back and actually the day I drove home, I, I was uh, joking with you. I was like, oh, it's plus 13 down here and beautiful, no snow. And then, yeah, no, that's gone. It's cold. See, it sucks. You did it to yourself. You did it. You did it to yourself by calling it out. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was minus almost twenty all day long today and yesterday, and uh, for the for the night it's a nice balmy minus thirteen and clear skies. So, yeah, it's here. Yeah, it's, it's time to fun. stay warm. No, I know my kids are excited. A white Christmas and all. I could care less. It could be uh, it could be a brown Christmas. Hell, I'd love to have a palm tree Christmas if you really ask me. I'm a summer guy. Always will be. To me, it, the winter is just shitty roads and a chance of getting in an accident. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was video. Uh, I think it was midweek here where people in Edmonton were skating, ice skating in their yes. residential streets because it was so cold and there had been more freezing rain. And yeah, the thaw melt is here, which is just horrible. I'm one that I don't care if it's cold, but just when winter starts. I don't care if it gets to minus 30, minus 40, whatever, but get to that temperature, stay there, and then come out of it. This up and down yo-yo stuff, I can't stand. It's it's not fun. No, I agree. And and speaking of, you know, the, we're talking about a deep freeze. That's going to segue perfectly into what we want to talk about today. And that is the deep freeze that has become the Vancouver Canucks. We had a whole other show planned out. We were going to talk about the great, this great CFL playoffs. So far, they've been absolutely fantastic. The four games have been top-notch entertainment. We were going to talk about the playoffs. We we're going to talk about the crazy Major League Baseball 
then some of the crazy signings, the Blue Jays going out and picking up a, a Kevin Gossman. We had this all lined up. The lockout. The lockout. We had it all lined up. Well, unfortunately, the Aquilini family changed our plans last night and into early this morning. Ken, there's only one thing we can talk about, and that is the state of affairs of the Vancouver Canucks. So on today's show, Ken and I are going to have our own little town hall of the Vancouver Canucks, who, for those who may not have heard, they, they cleaned house. They got rid of GM Jim Benning, the assistant GM, uh, Wisebrod, what's his first name against her? John Wisebrod. John yeah. Wisebrod is going to say Jim. Uh, head coach Travis Green, uh, a couple other coaches. Nolan Baumgartner's gone. Yeah. yeah, Baumgart absolutely cleaned house. Brought in Boost Brew Droz, their new coach, and haven't named a new GM, but they're, you know, Mr. Aquilini came out today with a, a interview and more or less said the search is on to pretty much rebuild the front office of the Vancouver Canucks. Ken, my first question to you, and I mentioned this to you off air, I get to fire, give you some, you know, questions that I want answered. You're the big Canuck guy. I got some questions for you. I want you to answer. Ken, what took so long? I have no idea. I think I said this to you multiple times. If the Canucks were going to make a change, it should have been done at that game 13 to 15 range because not a lot has changed since then for this team did it take an extra 10 games because they were trying to find the right fit behind the bench possibly uh sportsnet 650 had bruce brujo on back in november late november and probably close to two weeks ago talking about you know as his name had come up and he said it would be awesome to coach a canadian team he's never done it he he'd be very i think interested in it and it would be a dream uh being that he is canadian so I, I don't know because there was always like, well, we'll see after this road trip. They said this three game road trip. Okay. Well, you lost the majority of those games. Okay. Well, we're going to look after this homestand. Okay. Well, what does it matter if you win two or three of those games, you're still out of it. Nothing was changing. The, the, the last road trip that ended, whether that was already decided or not, and they're just working out numbers with Bruce Boudreaux, they beat, Montreal and Ottawa, two teams who are just as poor as them in the standings right now. So you really don't want to gauge, hey, we're taking the right steps. Sure, you won those games, but in theory, you should have. What should have shown a step in the right direction is coming home and putting on a performance against Pittsburgh and coming out with a W. Not an overtime loss, not a 2-1 loss, a win. And they got embarrassed 4-1. And it wasn't a good... Yeah, that's the the moral victories they've been talking about have been all season. Well, you know, we played better this game. You still lost 4-2. Sure, the fourth goal was empty netter. Who cares? You still lost 4-2. I got, as a fan, I got so tired of hearing about moral victories because moral victories don't do a damn thing. And I, I have never said to you, I've never been one to go on Twitter or other social media and say, Jim Benning has to be fired. Travis Green needs to be fired. I, I, I'm not that type of person. I'm not going to go out and wish for someone to lose their job. But what, what, what became clear and clear is that there was change needed 
within the Canucks organization. For whatever reason, the message seemed to be getting stale coming from the coaching staff and management. So at a certain point in time, unfortunately, because I don't think either person are, are bad people, change needs to happen. And when things like this are going so poorly, when after 25 games, you're 8, 15, and 2, and you have a minus 20 goal differential, something has to change. And in sports, it is always coach and management GMs that go first. Almost always. You can't trade out an entire roster. So it comes down to the coaches and management. So was I surprised it was happened? No. Am I surprised it took this long? Absolutely. Because this was as even some of the team said they were going for it this year. They expected to be in the playoffs. And when it started off so poorly and had no signs of getting any better to me, that was a failure in not making a change earlier. And if it was because they wanted to make sure the right person was in there, fine. Because Bruce Boudreaux only got this season and next. He got what essentially Travis Green had got as a contract going forward. As for the management side of things, uh, Stan Spiel was named interim GM, I guess, today officially. But it's going to kind of be by committee with Stan Smeal, Ryan Johnson, who's the GM in Abbotsford, the Sedins, Chris Gear. There's going to be a committee doing this. And one thing that I took away from the press conference that took place today with Stan Smeal and Francesco Aquilini was that Stan had had enough. And he had to speak up. So something had must have gone so wrong behind the scenes that it, he, he finally snapped. This is a man who has spent 40 years of his life, 40 of 50 years of a franchise life being part of the Canucks. He has only ever played or has been employed by one organization. And when he gets that upset to finally come forward and say something, whether that was directly to ownership, you know, something has gone sideways. So Stan Smeal is very passionate about the Canucks and what is going on with it. So it's, I'm really going to be interested to see what shoe falls next, because who knows what Jim did that maybe the rest of the management team said, Hey, we don't know about this, but did it anyways. Right. As a GM, you can say, I'll take your opinion. I may not give a shit what it is. I'm going to do it anyways. But I will, it's going to be interesting to see because now if the players come out and play the same lackluster style, players are going to start to go. And that's going to be a big thing. Uh, I am really interested and excited to see what Boudreaux does as a coach behind the bench. They're going to play the Kings. That's going to be his first game. He's going to have one skate with the team in the morning before that to have put anything. So what happens in that game, we'll see. I'm not expecting a lot, but I'm expecting a much better effort out of the players because essentially they still have jobs while their former coaches and GM don't. So it's going to be really interesting that side. I want to circle back to one of the points you made about the timing. And I 100% agree with you. Epic fail. Epic fail on the timing. This has been brewing in Vancouver for 
15 games at least, if not 20. What I didn't like about it was it almost feels like the Aquilinis did almost a knee-jerk reaction to the reaction of the crowd against the Pittsburgh Penguins. They waited until fans started throwing jerseys on the ice. They waited until they started having fire for living and fire green chants loud enough that you could clearly hear it on the TV feed. And the reason I want to circle back to this point is that's not the first time it's come to that in Vancouver. That's the second time it didn't, Mike Gillis didn't get fired until the fire Gillis chants were crazy in the building and it shouldn't come to that ownership should have a better hand on the pulse of the team, of the fans, of the entire situation. What I worry about in Vancouver is what if it's not going well with Boudreaux and all of a sudden the, the Canucks fans go, well, if we just start saying fire Boudreaux at every home game, the Aquilinis are going to fire him. So are, are you almost setting a precedent with your fan base that, well, if you guys whine and snivel it up, we'll do what you say. And I think that's dangerous. I really do. Yeah, Gillis was the same as it, as with Benning, where when it started to get more and more vocal, changes were made. Here's where there is that gap that's in place with the Vancouver Canucks. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Vancouver Canucks goes ownership, general manager, coaching staff. There is no president of hockey operations in between to quiet that knee-jerk reaction. Now, I'm going to say the Jim Benning one was not quite, to me, a knee-jerk reaction. He was the third or fourth longest tenured general manager in the NHL. The three, two or three guys ahead of him all had something he didn't. Stanley Cup final appearances and more than one season in the playoffs. So I don't know that this was necessarily a knee-jerk reaction. This was... Yes, it came across bad on television, but last season when there wasn't fans in the stands, there was a very negative group on Canucks Twitter who flew a banner in the city that said fire Benning. They were, oh, I see Jim Benning at the grocery store. I'm going to follow him and take pictures and video of him uh, when he's out in the store. Like there is a very loud vocal group that is doing it. And that was, you know, the, the, the group that hated Benning. Jim Benning did not have a stellar eight years in Vancouver. No, you know, he, he did some things right. And this off season, he, he got a positive mark, but it doesn't take away from the seven years where he dropped the ball. So I don't know if I would say it's knee jerk. I think I know Stan Smeal absolutely took that Jersey toss to heart and absolutely hated it. Like it just, tore at his guts that it happened because it, the fans finally are saying enough is enough. And I, I, I hope they do bring in a hockey ops president of hockey ops to buffer between, because even Aquilini said it today, ownership owns management, manages coaches, coach. 
you need that buffer so that you don't have ownership tinkering. Like a president of hockey ops could have hired the Bruce Boudreaux, but it was ownership that hired Bruce Boudreaux because Jim Benning was leaving. So I'm assuming the GM by committee group that mentioned earlier had a say in it, but I think this one, I, I wouldn't call knee jerk from a Canucks fan. I just feel like it was knee jerk in the reaction to the fans. Like this should have happened 15 games ago. This never should have got to it. It's almost like, Oh crap. The fans are really mad. We better do it. They, That's they kind of mad. where I don't I know felt it's like optically. It looks that way. I know it isn't that way. Yeah. Optically to me, it looks that way a little bit. I don't I wonder, think they were uh, any less mad 10, 15 games ago. I don't think I just, they were either. I just think the person who tossed the jersey had tickets to Pittsburgh. And whether that it was that game or it was four home games ago that they had a ticket, that 280 bucks was hitting the ice. And, yeah. You know. I want to circle to Travis Green a little bit. I, we're going to come back to Jim Benning because by no means are we done there. I want to circle to Travis Green. Do you feel like he was ever given a fair shake. And by that, was he ever given a roster to he actually could have won with? Was his undoing Jim Benning or was Travis Green's undoing Travis Green? I, I think there's a little bit of 60-40 in that, right? This year he was given a much better roster than he has had probably in his tenure. Up front, like you're grimacing at me saying that. But he has, a for what he's had in the past, on paper this year, I never said they were cup contenders. I said they would be fighting for a third or fourth in the, in the Pacific Division yep. and a playoff spot. Very, which, that's, that was fair expectations, I think. Which, when you look at the roster on paper versus other rosters, you wouldn't have said that. But Travis Green was always supposed to be this great developer, and that's what got him the job going from Utica to Vancouver was he could develop these guys. I never saw him get him over that hump. I never saw him take Brock Besser, who came out on fire in his first few years, and turn him into a 35-goal man consistently or more, right? It's no different with Elias Pedersen and even you know Quinn Hughes. Like Those guys are just coming out of their entry-level contracts, but they should be taking those next steps. Yes, Elias Pedersen is coming off a, a nasty wrist injury, so you expect a little bit there. But Quinn Hughes had a horrible defensive season last year. So where was the coaching there, whether it was him or Baumgartner or whoever, that coaching staff, who was stepping in last year to help Quinn Hughes turn his game around? Now, this year, he started off better. He's positive on his plus minus. He is almost a point a game. Last year, he was neither of those things. You know, you would have been giving him the green green jacket at the Masters with his plus minus last year. I don't know if, and I'm not saying Travis Green's a bad coach. I just don't know if Travis Green's that guy to get more out of veterans and get the, the younger players past a certain point because everyone kind of seemed to hit a certain level and stop. And when the Canucks were slumping, they never got out of it. I want to kind of take off on that point. And I actually really think you're on to something there. Very accurate. It seems like 
players played some of their best hockey for Travis Green in their first and second seasons. And then they plateaued and didn't uh, progress at all. I'm going to look at JT Miller. JT Miller came into Vancouver, guns ablazing, had a mm-hmm. tremendous first season, leveled off in his second season. And now his third season, I would say, has regressed. Elias Pedersen, guns ablazing in his first year. Second season, decent. Third season, not good. It's regressing. Quinn Hughes is, I think, is having a better year this year, but he didn't take off. Uh, Bo Horvat, like it looked like after the playoff bubble, he was going to be a superstar. No, he just kind of reverted back to average Joe. Brock Besser, same thing. Like, I, I really think you you hit the nail on the head when you talk about these guys. They played well in their first couple of seasons, but never got better. And I, I do think a ton of that is on the coach because you can't have your best players leveling off. And I'm going to just quickly look at the Calgary Flames here. We were seeing the same thing with Johnny Goudreau, Elias Lindo, Matthew Kachuk under Jeff Ward. And then all of a sudden it, it was just like somebody that was able to motivate them. And all of a sudden it's just like, no, they haven't plateaued. They're they're on the upswing again. So I do very much agree with your, your opinion on that. Well, let's take a look at it. Brock Besser, if it wasn't for an injury, he, he may have won the Calder Trophy. Runner-up. The next season, Elias Pettersson, Calder Trophy winner for Rookie of the Year. The next season, if Kale McCarr was a year later, Quinn Hughes would have had that in a landslide. But again, runner up that's three years in a row where your rookies are either finishing second or winning the Calder trophy as the best rookie in the league Nils Hoaglander came in and was in the conversation a little bit by no means do I think he should have been runner up or won it but he had that play that where people are going like holy crap this guy came out of nowhere and is lighting it up he had a little bit of a setback in his second season but after he's he's been a fairly consistent this season in putting it together, but you got to get, you got to take those guys. You had three guys who finished in the top two for rookie voting three years in a row. That is a, like, that's a moment where you go, Holy shit. We're going to be really good. Not sitting eighth place after 25 games in the Pacific uh, division with 18 points. Like that there is a colossal failure when you have that much potential and you've brought in an OEL who everyone said was done, done. But if he's turned it around a bit and is turned back the clock a little bit, you've got a Connor Garland who's essentially a Tasmanian devil out there. This team should be way further ahead than where they're at right now. And I do put that on some of the coaching, like, Brad Shaw was brought in this season as the defensive coach and everyone was gushing over that because of what he did in his other stops. Jason King was brought in to take over for Newell Brown on the special teams. And it was the same regurgitated product on the special teams, except worse when it comes to penalty kill way worse. Like there, there's just, well, you sent me the thing over 25 games is the worst in NHL history. Takes a special group to make NHL history. Yeah, and this is not the right type of special teams. So I'm assuming at the end of the season, 
potentially there could be more coaching changes because it's now Bruce Boudreaux and Scott Walker brought in to be on the bench. I would potentially look at maybe Brad Shaw stays, but does Jason King do either stay at the end of the season, right? Maybe this group, apparently Bruce Boudreaux's message in the morning skate was all about skating speed and attacking, which was a complete 180 from what some of the players were saying they were getting before the game against the Kings game one under Bruce Boudreaux. People are going to see whether it was a systems issue or a roster construction issue. And that's going to be how it goes. The first few games are always going to be maybe higher than what you expect because the players have something to prove. So we'll see after a week, you know, five, six games under Boudreaux, how it's going. But I I don't put all the blame on Travis Green. I don't necessarily think he's a bad coach. I think he might need some more NHL experience as an assistant under someone who can show how to get more out of your veterans and get those young guys over the hump. He'll, he'll, you know, it was said if Travis Green is let, let go, he won't be out of work for long. Right. I think he will. Well, that's one of, one of the, that's what I was coming from an unnamed executive, but I don't necessarily see him back in the game this year. Who knows at the end of the season, Philly's looking for a new coach now. Yeah. Right? They need a new head coach and, and an assistant after Terry and, as assistant coach and Elaine Vigneault were let go. It's going to be interesting to see where he ends up, whether a team takes a chance on him at the NHL level, what type of team it is, or does he go back to the AHL as a head coach and try and work it out there again? A lot of these guys sometimes are career minor league head coaches because they, they can get the players to the NHL. Look at, go back to the Canucks. We'll stay within this organization they brought up Willie Desjardins who was an AHL guru head coach he was the guy he was down in the Dallas in I think it was with Texas you know the Dallas Stars affiliate and they Canucks brought him up and he did not last he couldn't get it done Dallas but see I I feel like he see I feel like he can start Desjardins were kind of given the Jim Benning raw deal they were never actually given that good of a team to coach so like Desjardins, I think had, the first few years he was there, I thought they were pretty good. But I just feel like there were so many flaws on those teams. And that I just, I don't know. I, I think Travis Green was an okay coach. I do definitely agree with you on the team, the, the players plateau. They totally did. So I somewhat agree with your assessment, but I don't ever feel like Jim Benning put a, a real team on the ice for him. And by no means am I saying this as a Calgary Flames fan that my GM has either. I just feel like, you know, the, the, the coaches are taking the fall for some poor work from Jim Benning through his entire tenure. But uh, and I was saying like, not all good coaches can do this, but a good coach can take what he has and make it work. But how many Absolutely. times have you, have you looked at a roster and said, how the hell did this team get to the to the conference final? Look How at Daryl Sutter team... and the Flames this year. How in the hell are they in first place yeah. in the Western Cup? They like they weren't a playoff team, and they've got the same group. So yes, I totally agree with that. And then they brought in some guys that would be considered plugs or fringe NHLers. And how do they still have a job? Right? I'm not you know pointing at Good Branson or Zadorov, but whatever. Um, 
Hey, don't knock our third pair. This is a this is a Canucks Town Hall. We can yeah. do a Flames one if you'd like. No, but I think a good coach can take the roster and make it work. Absolutely. My biggest problem where I think Travis Green may need, and I'm not I'm not a coach. I haven't played hockey. I've never coached hockey. I'm just a fan and observer. But what I observed from my favorite team that is I've been a fan of forever, I don't, and I've, I've played sports. I've played soccer. I've played baseball. I've played team sports. You don't build chemistry when your line mates and setup and everything changes four times a game. Travis Green would start the game with certain lines. And by near the end of the first, he'd have the lotto line back together, Miller, Besser, and Pedersen. He'd have Pearson, Horvat, and whoever back together. He would constantly, okay, we're going to change the lines up. This is what we're running at practice. Okay, the morning skate, these are the lines. He'd get to the game, and within 30 minutes out of 60, all the lines are different again. 10 minutes later, oh, we're still down. We're going to change it up again. You don't build chemistry by constantly changing the lines. How do you expect these guys to know where they're going to be, what they need to do, right? Like you got to get it set and let these guys play. And if after three games, line B isn't getting it done, break it up, make one change. Don't make, okay, well, Today, Pedersen's with Pod Colson and Jason Dickinson. Okay, Pedersen's with Tyler Mott and whoever, or Chase on. That's not going to work. You're never going to get consistency out of your players if they're trying to figure out, okay, well, this guy skates slower than this guy, so I got to either slow down for him or I got to move the puck around myself more so he can get in position longer. I, that was always my biggest frustration was the inconsistency of lines because it doesn't work. Hey, I want to move on to another question on this. You've given management the gears. You've given the coaching staff the gears. You've kind of blamed it on them. How much do the players take have an, or take part in this? Like, Are you giving them a free pass? How much of this is their fault? No, no, I, I think... The players don't get a free pass on this. And I'm not going to give them a free pass. They own part of it because they got to go out there and they, they, their job is to produce. And that wasn't happening. Where I'm not 100% sure how much blame they get for it is, is it a lack of effort or did they just shut down on their coach? Or was the system that they were being sent out to play not allowing them to be the best version of themselves. So they do, they definitely own it because they got to figure it out. Now, whether that's a, a team meeting where it's players only, or the players call and say, look, we need to sit this down and get on the same page because we're not getting what you're talking about. You, this, what we're doing is not working and we, we're a team. Yes. You're the coach, but we want to work through this together to make it work. You can, because here's the thing, if you don't do what the coaches want, they're just going to, they're going to scratch it. You're not going to play. So you have to fall in line and do that. But you also, there has been times where the effort hasn't always been there from some of the players. 
I think none of them like losing, right? I think the, the, the microphones around the NHL arenas are very good. So you can hear the frustration and the four letter words that are flying when things don't go right. So the players don't get a free pass on this. They definitely own some of it. Um, but to the, some of that point about the coaching of how they're set up, is Pedersen set up for success playing with guys who are third liners? Is that going to set him up to, to be a goal scorer and then have everyone go, oh, Pedersen's not scoring. Look, he didn't have a goal again tonight. Okay, well, he played 13 minutes on the third line with Tyler Mott and Chase on. What do you expect out of him? Because that is a checking line, not a scoring line. He, he is not the Sedins 2.0 where he can turn Chase on and Mott or Dickinson and Mott or Pod Colson into 30 goal scorers like the Sedins did to Anson Carter or uh, Alex Burroughs and many, many others you got to put your players in the right spot. So if they are given an opportunity and they continue to fail, they continue to lose, they continue to not produce. Yeah. It's on the players and maybe the coaching staff gets less blame, but until for me, I can see they, that it is them fully. I have to think that the system is going to be maybe a little bit more to blame for now, I would say. Yeah, I got to watch a Canucks game with you a couple of weeks ago. And I, I especially remember asking you when, when I watched and I said to you, I said, where's the passion? Where's the pace? Where's the care? I said, like, the Canucks look slow. And I kind of asked you, I was like, has it been like this all year? And you pretty much said, yes, it absolutely has been like this all year. That was the first thing I noticed in really getting a chance to actually sit down and watch the Canucks was, for a young, explosive team, they look slow. They played slow. And I, it, it just astounded me. It was like, what am I watching here? Like, I'm watching a team that can't get out of their own way, gave up scoring chance after scoring chance. Heaven forbid they do put their head on a swivel. And I was just like, what is going on here? So the, the players, I think, have a, a huge part in this. It's the player's job to kill a penalty. I don't care. It's not that difficult to kill a penalty. You, you, there's a box like stay in the box. <laughs> it's the penalty kill. I, I really, that's on the players. hundred yeah. percent to me that that is just, we don't care. Our passion is not there outside of that. A lot of it, in my opinion, is systems getting them to play the right way. So I definitely agree with you on that uh, side of things. I think I wanna, though, too, like, with, with, the, with the penalty kill, I mean, when for my frustration, I don't think I've ever been as well, blasé about watching a Canucks game at times as this season, where I, I was watching them with the, the wife of two and a half weeks ago, and the Canucks scored. And she's like, you're not going to cheer? I'm like, they're still losing. I said, until they tie it or take the lead, like it's meaningless. And that's what the watching them has done. But you talked about the speed and things like that, how they didn't have any. The comment I said earlier, where one I forget whether it was OEL or one of the other players who said Bruce Boudreaux talking about speed and aggression and skating. The fact that they thought that was good tells me that may not have been being said to them by the prior coaching staff. So that's where I talk systems. As for the penalty kill, I, I get so frustrated seeing 
a Canuck defenseman or forward, chase a guy behind the net and get out of that box that every team employs on the penalty kill, a guy can't score from behind the net. I don't care how many times the Michigan or the lacrosse style goal has been attempted. It doesn't get used that often. Stop chasing behind the net. But yes, I do think a lot of it comes to the systems that I think hopefully with a more experienced NHL coach now who can bring a new voice to it will help turn things around because it really, I don't know if it, how much worse it can get for the penalty killing power play. I want to stick with the coach theme here, Ken, for you. Bruce Boudreaux. Is he the guy Ken would have hired? Is he the right guy for the job? And what are realistic expectations for the Canucks for the rest of the season? Uh, yeah, he was always, you know, when you and I talked about this, you know, just in general, he was always one of the guys that was at the top of my list for someone to bring in because he has NHL experience. He has coached some very good teams and has done well. He hasn't missed the playoffs that often in his NHL career. I think as a head coach, four seasons since 2007 and eight, uh, 2007, 2008, he's not made the playoffs. Boudreaux is well known for always getting to the playoffs and never winning in the playoffs. That's kind of his resume for some of the listeners out there who may not know Bruce Boudreaux. The guy's a regular season stud. Unfortunately, that regular season stud does not translate in the playoffs. Uh, He actually has very few series victories. He has a losing record. I believe it's something like 44 and 48 in his career or something like that in the playoffs. So Bruce Boudreaux is a very good regular season coach. At, at this point, having a coach that has a history of coaching teams to the playoffs is a good start because right now we don't have that. We aren't sniffing the playoffs. We got into the bubble because it was expanded and we won our play in against Minnesota. So, right. Like I think. So what are realistic expectations for the rest, for the rest of the season? For the rest of this season? 500 hockey? It, I would hope for a little over 500. You know, we're talking, we're at game 25. We got 82. So you're, you're 58 games left, right? Or 57, whatever it is. Math's not my favorite, you know, my favorite right now. I'm a half a beer in, so we'll just let that go. Um, we're, we're history majors, folks, not <laughs> yeah, mathematicians. Yeah, history was a reason. Math was avoided very, very very much at all costs. Um, no, I think over 500, I'd like to see this team. I don't think they'll, they have a chance at the playoffs, but you know, I don't want them. I don't want them playing for, um, was it Shane Wright this year? This is the number one overall pick uh, projected right now. I don't want them playing for a first the overall for pick. right. Yeah, no, I, I don't want that. I want this team to show what they can do and should have been doing since game one. So I'm not about, tanking for a draft pick i don't like that i don't want to see it as a canucks fan living in edmonton i have to pay to watch the majority of games i don't want to pay to watch my team intentionally lose to draft a a player who may or may not pan out i don't want to see that i don't i won't pay for that and i probably wouldn't pay the next season if that's how they want to do things i'll watch the games that come on tv that i already pay for so realistically i want to see them come out of this over 500 for the rest of the season 
it's not going to do anything for a playoff run unless other teams completely crap the bed and, you know, go south. But at this point in time, it ain't going to happen. So before we get back to slagging on Jim Benning, which I'm very much looking forward to, I have one more kind of question in regards to the culture in Vancouver. How much of that culture was created by the media and the fans? You're talking the negativity. Yes. So I follow a lot of them, a lot of the media. And I follow a lot of fans. I probably shouldn't because of how negative they are, but it's Twitter. Negativity is everywhere. I would say a lot of the media is fair in the assessment of the Canucks. And when they're, when they're bad, you're going to talk about them being bad. You can't sugarcoat it. Right. And, and say, it's great. You can't throw glitter on a dog turd and call it a diamond. Right. You can't do that. That's you have to be honest with where this team is at. And (laughs) you're laughing, but you're on mute. So no one else can hear it. Um, It is what it is. So you, a lot of the fans that want to, coat the Canuck world with shiny colors for 82 games, call it negative. No, it's an honest assessment. And there are some that I follow on Twitter, but I kind of tune out because they are kind of negative about it. So there is some, a small portion of media that may enjoy it being negative because it allows them to get some digs in. Cause maybe they didn't get a job with the Canucks or got called out for something or didn't get an interview. There's a large group of negative fans that do make it known and they will go down. They went down and protested at an empty arena before a game last season when no fans could go in. There was about 20 of them, but everyone knew about it. They flew a banner. They crowdsourced that to do it. I think it's no different than any other fan base, but unfortunately sometimes the more negative fans are the loudest. And if you're negative about the team that day, you'll find someone else to that you can get involved with that and be negative with. I, I don't think there was any Canucks fans that weren't fed up with what was going on. Uh, I, I don't know that there are some media, I will say that are a little too toe the company line for the Canucks, but they don't work for the Canucks. They'll, they'll always spin it in a good way, but I don't know. I mean, for the most part, the media just talks about what's actually going on. And if you haven't been a good GM for eight years, they're going to talk about you being not a good GM for eight years. And that doesn't make them a bitter Benning fan. Or a, if you say, hey, Jim Benning had a good offseason this year, that doesn't make you a Benning bro and love what he's done over his tenure. He had a good offseason. There's nothing wrong with saying that. You can also follow it up by saying he's had seven bad off seasons. I, I don't know how much really the media played into it, but like any professional sports, when you're paying customers start getting loud about, Hey, I'm not renewing my season's tickets. I'm not buying merchandise. I'm not going to do anything. That's going to give you money. A team's going to react and that, you know, about 15 games too late for the Canucks the season, but ownership reacted because they're paying customers. We're not happy with the product. And in Vancouver, 
the fans will not show up if the product is not good. It happens with the Whitecaps, happens with the Lions, it happens with the Canucks. The Canucks had an NHL sellout streak years, not you know, a handful of years ago. That when the team stopped being good and weren't producing on the ice, people stopped going because there's other things to do in Vancouver than just go to a sports event. So you got to be good. And I think people need to realize that when sports media, local media is saying, hey, the Canucks aren't good this year, they're not being negative. They're just telling you how it is. Well, we've talked about the coaches, the fans, the media. We briefly talked about Benning. I want to get back to Benning. In my opinion, this is all on him. He has not been a good GM. You just referenced it for probably seven of eight years that he's been there. I want to get back to Jim Benning and to me, the root of the problem. Ken, where did it go wrong in your opinion for Jim Benning? And then I got to kind of, I'm chancellor, I think we're going to agree on a lot of stuff, but I'm going to kind of give a rebuttal on that. Uh, where it went wrong was when he was given a blank check to kind of do whatever the hell he wanted to do. There was no buffer between him and ownership. Trevor Linden, who people still would say today is the face of the franchise from year one till now. Trevor Linden is Mr. Canuck. He's always been someone you would always associate with the organization. When he was hired as the president of hockey op- operations, Jim Benning was already the GM. And Trevor Linden had a vision on how he wanted the rebuild to go. He'd reached out to other teams who had gone through rebuilds, have been successful in their rebuilds, went from the basement to making the playoffs and having playoff success. He had a vision. Jim Benning had a vision that didn't align with that. And I think he got in the ears of ownership and won. And Trevor Linden walked away, said, fine, we'll part ways. You do you. And I think that lack of buffer gave Jim Benning the ability to do what he wanted. And I think, you know, he had a, uh, he was a cup winner with Boston in 2011 against the Canucks. He has assistant general manager. Yeah, no, that's a dark, dark time, but you know, he had a roster there that was already good and he came in and he tinkered. He was supposed to be this draft genius and things like that. But if you're a draft genius, why do you trade away so many of your draft picks? I was just going to bring that up. He, Jim Benning isn't the only one to have signed horrible contracts, but that Louis Erickson one, six, six by six for Louis Erickson, where he was maybe going to get two years with the Sedins, and he did. And did I, I've never seen a player be less productive playing with the Sedins than Louis Erickson. I don't know how much I put that on Benning because he came out of you're down. right. The Sedins were terrible. No, the Sedins <laughs> are not the problem. Um, <laughs> ass, but they Louis Erickson just came in, got paid, and said, I'm whatever, man, I'll show up. And he owed him a lot of money. And that handcuffed him. He gave Jay Beagle, Sam Gagne, Antoine Roussel a lot of money. He, he had a $12 million fourth line. For multiple seasons. For, for multiple, you don't win with a $12 million 
fourth line. Unless that fourth line is giving you 75 goals a season combined. Sure, pay your fourth line 12 million if they're going to give you 75 goals, but these guys were not. Uh, I think for me, it was the, he had no one telling him, Jim, that's a stupid idea. We're not doing that. Jim, no, we should not make this trade. Jim, we should hang on to that draft pick. Look at where we are in the standings, right? Jim, you should probably trade Dan Hamus. We're, we're not in the playoffs and he could fetch you a good draft pick. Held on to guys when he should have made a trade. A lot went wrong for Jim Benning. Uh, a lot. And I think not having someone, ownership wants to win. So if he's sweet talking the hell out of Francesco Aquilini and, and the rest of the ownership saying, hey, if I do this, if you give me this much money, we'll win. But they don't. And they say, hey, you know, course correction, I need a little bit more money to do this. Well, ownership wants a winning product. Owner, If you own a sports team, 99.9% chance you're a fan and you want to win. You want to have the best team. You want to have the trophies piling up in your cases. I think it was that he, he had no one above him other than ownership. And he must have been sweet talking them real good to continue doing what he was doing with such little success. To me, Benning's biggest failure was he had too many visions. And what do I mean by that? It changed every year. He never stuck to a plan. I'm going to call it shiny penny syndrome. His team was good for one year and he's like, oh yeah, we need to do that. We need to do that. And then all of a sudden it was like, they were bad for a year. Whoa, whoa, we need to do that. He never stuck to a plan. He never realized it was like you got you. The Canucks had the playoff run in the bubble. They won a couple of rounds that let's be honest. If Jacob Markstrom and Thatcher Demko didn't stand on their heads, he wouldn't have won any of those rounds. And all of a sudden he got it in his head. We're a contender. And he went out and, and traded draft picks, uh, signed free agent deals, didn't retain good players. You know, let Tyler Toffoli walk, let Jacob Markstrom walk, let Chris Tanev walk. He never saw a vision through to the end. And whether that was a rebuild and say, hey, you know what? We are going to suck shit for three years, but that's okay. Let's do that for three years and then let's move forward. But then it was kind of like, oh, we're good for a year. Now we're good. Well, no, we're, now we're bad for a year. We're bad. It's like too many visions and just never, ever, ever really set focus on one of them to really put the Canucks on a trajectory, a path. They're, they're, it's almost like a rudderless ship where it's just like, it, it changes course every, every time the wind games, blows, yeah. whichever way the wind blows. Like to me, that was his biggest failure. And then some of the transactions he made and didn't make in that time frame. I, the last three years for the Canucks, I think they, are really hurting from letting Jacob Markstrom go, Chris Tanev go, and Tyler Toffoli go. To me, they were set back a couple of years by those three specific transactions. And that's not a shot on Thatcher Demko in any way. You let your heart and soul guys go in those transactions. You then, and I know he got a lot of praise for letting the Roussels and Beagles go, but how much of those were heart and soul guys, the dressing room guys? I just really feel like 
he didn't value his his current assets well or really understand what they meant to the team and it set him back well I, and again not letting jim off any of the hook for this but we talked about the the rudderless ship and all oh, we're doing this and all oh, we're doing that was that ownership with no buffer getting involved too much because if you have if you have a hockey do you think brian burke in pittsburgh if ownership goes hey, hey you know we've won seven games let's go out and get this guy or you know this guy scored five goals this week let's give him a 20 million dollar extension brian burke's be like whoa, whoa sit back down let's play this out let's see how it goes then we'll decide let, let me put a tie on and let's talk yeah. about this. Let me let me wrap a tie around my neck, but I'm not going to tie it. And I haven't had a haircut in seven months, but here we go. Um, you don't have that buffer to say, hey, look, I, I get what you're saying, but let's see how this plays out. Or, hey, let's be realistic about our team right now. We're not that. This is what we realistically are. We'll move forward on that. So I really, I really think they weren't. They weren't good at giving themselves honest assessments of where the Canucks really were. And what do I mean by that? After the playoff bubble, did they honestly think the Canucks were a Stanley Cup contender? Or because they kind of acted like it. Or did they actually know what they were and go, yeah, we won a round or two behind a hot goalie. Let's keep this process going. It just feels like they kept jumping and jumping and jumping and they weren't willing to actually give an honest assessment of where they were. You know, after they lost to the Calgary Flames in 2015, it was like in the playoffs. It was like, did they give an honest assessment of where they were? I don't know that they did. It's just like, I think they were afraid to ask themselves the tough question and look in the mirror and go, what are we and what should we be? And I think they lost that when Trevor Linden walked away. Yep. When he left, because it seemed like he had a vision. And whether that vision fell in line, we don't know. Because But now they're talking about once we have a GM in place and potential, like they said, uh, a president of hockey ops and a GM would have to go hand in hand, come in at the same time. And then it's like, okay, we'll assess what we need to do, whether it's a rebuild, a rejig or whatever. So now you're still in that we don't know what we are doing situation because you're making this change 25 games into the season and you have asked your head coach, assistant coach, GM and assistant GM, who, by the way, if you ask a lot of the media and even some people that are Canucks fans, they couldn't tell you what John Weisbrod did for the Canucks. No one had an idea of what his actual job was, but Jim Benning talked to him every day. Would Jim Weisbrod's a product of the Calgary flames. And it's actually funny you say that because, there was a lot of that going on in Calgary too. It was like, what is this guy actually bringing to the table? Another place that I think Benning was an epic fail is his free agent contracts. His like the free agents that he signed were set the franchise back because he was tossing huge money to guys that he shouldn't have been. And I think he it, it ended up really hurting you guys a couple of years ago when Tanev had to go, Markstrom had to go, Toffoli had to go. Even this offseason, like you had to jettison out some of your heart and soul guys just to make room to be able to sign Pedersen and uh, Hughes. It's like, well, didn't you know two years ago these guys' contracts were up? Like, why weren't you planning this a little better? And no, it was like 
we're just going to spend to the cap every year. Let's worry about it next year. It's like, so his, his cap management was definitely uh, questionable at best. You said it earlier. He was supposed to come in and been this draft guru. Well, if, if you're a draft guru, you missed on two top 10 picks. You can't miss on top 10 picks in today's NHL. Olio Evi, that epic fail. That has got to be one of the worst drafts and black eyes on betting, especially when you see Matthew Kachuk, Jesse Pugliarvi, uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois, guys like that going right around. Olio Evi, like that, that was just an epic fail. And then the whole Jake for Tannen, like, what was he, a sixth or seventh overall pick? There, another top 10 pick. And then you just, you let that fester for so long. It was just, for a guy who's supposed to be so good at drafting, he was actually quite poor at drafting. Well, I don't know if that those two picks were poor picks. They just never panned out. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'll sure, give you that. I'm sure a lot of other teams would have taken Ole Ulevi or you know, Jake Vertanen at that spot and believe we'll Vertanen is, is. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Valimaki, right? Yeah. There, there's a lot of guys that get drafted high, but don't pan out. And it, what it was with the Canucks for those two, and you could even talk about Sam Bennett and possibly Valimaki in that same conversation. Those four guys were given opportunities to develop. They didn't, but they were always like, we got to hang on to them because they're, they're top 10 picks. And if we cut them, if we let them walk, if we trade them now, we're going to look bad. You'll look worse by hanging on to Jake for Tannen to the point where he never ever gets it. And then has all this legal trouble. You don't want to touch with a 10 foot pole. Oli Levy injuries. Yes. It didn't work there, but even when he got the opportunity, didn't do anything with it. And in training camp this year is the only guy laying in the corner. Like he's been shot by a sniper in the upper levels after the bag skate, his teammates were not happy and neither was the organization because he was gone after that. So I don't think the draft picks were necessarily the problem. It was what happened after that when they clearly these guys weren't going to do it. Like they had to buy Jake Vertanen out when they could have just not signed him that off season. They, they bought him out because of the legal problems and rightfully so. But if you just didn't sign him and you let him walk, that would have been better because he did nothing the season prior to show that he was taking that next step. It was always got to hang on, got to hang on, got to hang on, go. And then you look at the fan base is horrible. And this is almost all of them. Um, Zach McEwen doesn't quite get it. And then he's like, he gets sent down and he gets picked up on waivers and everyone's up in arms about that. Jonah Gadjevich, again, another guy who just wasn't getting there. If these guys were developing properly and NHL ready, they'd be in the NHL. They wouldn't be having to be put on waivers to go to the minors. So now if you were to take someone with a, the sixth overall pick that should have been drafted in the, 13th round that's a problem unless you know something absolutely that no one else does okay but it better work out so i think his part with failing in the draft was hanging on to these high picks just because they were high picks i also feel like he never 
accumulated extra draft picks. And if he is supposed to be a draft wizard, don't you think he'd, you know, in the years, and Dan Hamuse, I joked about it earlier. Hamuse was a free agent on the 2016 team, I want to say. It was a team that wasn't going to the playoffs. He held on to him. He didn't trade him. I'm sorry, you probably could have got a second-round draft pick for Dan Hamuse. It's lottery tickets. They're always referred to as lottery tickets. Well, if you're supposed to be such a good drafter, why are you not trying to get some of these extra lottery tickets? You never jettison your free agents for extra draft picks. You always you always seem to be throwing in an extra draft pick yeah. and not accumulating one. I could never, I always joked with you where I was, oh, betting made a trade. So he traded a one for one and tossed in a second rounder. Like that wasn't it, it necessary. Just, it, yeah. It, it wasn't necessary. It just, I could Thomas never Vanek, figure it out. Thomas Vanek going from the Canucks to uh, Columbus for, Tyler Mott. And where's the pick? Is it not a pick? <laughs> not even a third? No fourth? Like I'm not expecting a first or second, but even a sixth round, seventh round? Right? Like, where was the pick? Like, you know, one for one, those types of deals, you know, just didn't exist. Okay, well, I want to have a little bit of fun here in the last couple of minutes with, with Jim Benning. Ken. Best transaction Jim Benning ever made. Worst transaction Jim Benning ever made. I got to put you on the spot here a little bit. Oh man, yeah, that that uh, that's a hell of a spot to be on. I know there's so many to choose from on the (laughs) worst transaction. So, well, I mean, the worst transaction is pretty for me. It's the free agent signing of Louis Erickson, the guy who got paid and just essentially got paid to sit in a press box. That guy owes us so much back money. It's not even funny. He got paid and just stopped showing up. He came to the rink and had his spot in the press box reserved and had his order in there, skipped the dishes straight up to, you know, that, that press box, every game. It's gotta be Louis Erickson for me as the worst. If you want to talk and I won't go through the draft, but as it stands right now, Connor Garland. Connor oh, JT, Garland. Mil- JT Miller, I think under a new coach could flourish. I think under Bruce Boudreaux, he could do very well. Connor Garland to me right now, he's young. He's a guy that's got speed, energy, works his ass off every shift and gets under the skin of guys who are a lot bigger than him. Um, that you know, you you traded off three guys who were on expiring contracts. You had to, you brought OEL in with that too, who so far has played fairly well for the Canucks and it's been good, but you know, still got five more seasons after this one to go. So we'll see. But for the, the acquisition of Connor Garland in what he gave up, I'll say that was probably one of his top ones with JT Miller because JT Miller came in and you're like, Gave up a first for JT Miller. That's okay. worked out fairly well. It has. But at the time, you questioned it. Like, okay, but it worked out well. Because, yeah. again, you never know how a draft pick is going to turn out. They're not all going to be Calder Trophy winners. They're not all going to be everyday NHLers. So getting a guy who is at a, at a younger age is beneficial. 
you've seen what he can do. You have an expectation of what he can bring and you go from there. There's no, you're not surrounded by question marks with it. So JT Miller, Connor Garland, are probably there up at the top. Louis Erickson, hands down, has probably got to be the worst. Well, I, I can have Derek Pouliot. Derek Pouliot. Yeah, Derek Pouliot well. was pretty bad. I can have a little bit of fun with this because there's about three transactions for me that are the best Jim Benning transactions, and uh, actually, you've already hit on a couple of them, um, and, and two of them are actually non-transactions, which turned out to be the best transactions. Number one. Acquiring Oliver Ekman Larson is a phenomenal transaction. He traded three expiring boat anchor contracts for a five-year boat anchor contract. I don't care how good he's playing this year, Ken. Six, Six years, sorry. Six. I don't care how good he's playing this year. He just left the next GM of the Canucks a massive present. And I know you got Connor Garland. I'll give him some props on that. That boat anchor contract, you, you just got rid of three to bring in a worse one. Best Next best Jim, ben, Jim Benning transactions, not signing Jacob Markstrom and Chris Tanev. The beauties, he, he was right on the money there. Absolutely, so for those, for those that love don't know or can't tell, Trevor is being kind of sarcastic right now. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love those transactions. And, and you... You hit the nail on the head. The absolute best transaction he ever made. Louis Erickson, six years, six million. Amazing. The many mistakes were made that offseason. The Calgary Flames actually have one of the big mistakes from that offseason playing on their fourth line right now. I'll give Milan Lucic a little bit of credit. He's actually playing okay. Let's be fair to him. That was just a bad offseason for many teams and look, Lad, oh yeah well Lad and Erickson are in, in Arizona right now too together. yeah Milan yeah they're all in Arizona Milan Lucic uh, I think that might have been the James no it wasn't James Neal it was a few years after it was there was a lot of bad transactions uh as far as uh, the worst transaction or the best transactions boy well, Jim Benning hasn't made a good transaction for the Canucks that's all I could say they're, they're, they were in last place last year. They're in last place this year. Benning's just good riddance. I, I think Canuck fans are probably happy he's gone. I'm highly disappointed that he's gone. Uh, I was looking forward to another eight years of Jim Benning, but, you know, it, 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 hockey's more fun when your rivals are good. I, I guess as much as I hate saying that, hockey's fun right now. The, the Emerson Oilers are good. The Calgary Flames are good. Hockey's better when the Vancouver Canucks are good as well, and you know, I, I hope this is some moves that get them back on kind of on course to be good again in a, in a year or two, because it, it's just a lot more fun when, when the teams in Western Canada are good, the rivalry's better, the fan interactions better. And I really hope these are steps in the right direction. If they're not, I'm not going to be overly disappointed, but for Canucks, just for the rivalry alone, it's more fun. Yeah, and from as a as a fan of the team, just it hit. I don't know if you can get much lower than it hit this season. And I mean, it could could have gotten worse. But as a fan, I I, I will watch win or lose. But man, I don't know that I've ever been so dejected watching a season twenty five games in where it's like, yeah, well, the Canucks are playing. 
what kind of shit show am I going to see tonight? Am I going to see uh, an effort or am I going to see my team get pasted yet again? So I'm hoping for a nice turnaround here. I don't have any expectations of playoffs. I'm not going, oh, my God, we're going to win the cup with Bruce Boudreau now. No, uh, I think we will be a better team. The Canucks will always be my team. Uh, and I'm. it's unfortunate when people got to lose their jobs, but I am happy the change was made. So we'll go with that. Canucks Nation, we really want to hear from you. Are you disappointed to see Green and Benning gone? I'm going to venture a guess to say no. Reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at the BleacherCon1. Ken is at the BleacherCon2. You can hit us up on our Facebook page, uh, the Bleacher Connection. We want to hear. This This is huge news. It's a major shakeup in Western Canada. Flames fans are talking about it. Oilers fans are talking about it. Canucks fans. This is major news. Let us hear yeah, absolutely. That's our show for this week. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. We will get that CFL show in uh, probably next week post Grey Cup because why not? It's post Grey Cup. I know my teams that I chose to be in the Grey Cup are there. Winnipeg versus Hamilton. I chose ha- uh, Winnipeg. I almost said the wrong team there. I chose Winnipeg to win over Hamilton in Hamilton. So we'll find out shortly whether I'm right or not. We want to thank I, you for tuning in. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Go sorry. I, I chose Winnipeg. I expected Toronto to get there. It was looking good for the Argonauts in the first quarter. Maybe if they could try punching it in from the three-yard line and not kicking a field goal, they'd be going for the Great Cup. But let's face it, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are going to win the Great Cup, hands down. I just – I think they got a lot to prove after this week. Again, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you again soon.